Okay, this is our second lesson on the subject of suffering and sorrow and grief. And uh, so we'll, we'll jump in here. I want to make the point, I meant to say this last week, much of the material, at least the early part of this material in this series of lessons, again, which I did 10 years ago, uh, was based uh, or came out of Herbert Carson's book, Facing Suffering. Uh, and like many topics, many subjects that we deal with, uh, as I deal with as, as a teacher or preacher, uh, I am a hunter-gatherer. That's why I have books in my library. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like a, a person who's collected cookbooks, and I go find the recipes, and sometimes I take a little bit from this one and a little bit from that one and put them together and add uh, a, little, a few of my own things and come up with a slightly new dish. But most of it I owe to other people and the work they've done and thought that they've given to these subjects. And so uh, um, I wanted to make that acknowledgement. I'll be quoting a number of people today. Um, First Peter, I'll start with quoting Peter. Um, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, that is a really packed, rich text there, but we'll look at some aspects of that as we go along. The question is, why do we suffer? Why is there pain? Why do these things happen? That's a question everyone asks, particularly when it's happening to them. But um, one answer to that, it's not the only answer, as we'll see, is that sometimes it's simply a judgment against sin. The judgment of God isn't only to be seen in a general way in the discord of creation, the the thorns and thistles, for example, the curse, but also in God's particular judgments upon nations and upon individuals. However, we must counter a misunderstanding, which is as old as the book of Job, namely, uh, it would be a mistake to think that suffering is always a sign of special sinfulness and of divine judgment. That would be a mistake. Remember the disciples who also had this in mind when in the case of the blind man, they asked, uh, was this the cause of his sin or the sinfulness of his parents? And, uh, and of course, Jesus said, neither. The unnamed questioners of Luke 13 had the same idea when they asked Jesus about the Galileans who had been massacred by Pilate. In both cases, Jesus is quite emphatic that the particular sufferings do not prove the commission of particular sins. Of the blind man, he said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest through him. On the Galilean massacre, he replied with a question, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So we must not assume that because someone is suffering deeply that it's a sign of God's judgment upon them individually. Any more than we should assume that because someone is temporarily prospering, uh, that this means that they are favored by God. That's a good, I think, a good way to think about this, to see the balance of that. Um, 
Yet having made this qualification, it must still be said that there are some specific judgments for specific sins, and there are certainly consequences of sins that are part of the judgment. Um, Gehazi's leprosy was divine retribution for his covetousness and deceit. We read about that in 2 Kings chapter 5. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, we read about their sudden deaths, which are recorded in Acts 5. These are solemn reminders of God's judgments on particular sins. Uh, I'm going to quote a few times. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And he said this, Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrong, wrongful patterns of life, as in the case of Jonah imperiled by the storm. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph sold into slavery. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone and to discover the ultimate peace and freedom. In the history of the Jews as a nation, there was the great crisis of the exile in the 6th century B.C. and the even greater catastrophe at Jerusalem's fall before the Roman soldiers in A.D. 70. And so there are many instances of national judgments, and when that happens, we see that the innocent frequently suffer along with the guilty. There is, however, one other aspect of judgment that's important to keep in mind, and that is uh, it's the gracious purpose which God has in view when he sends a trial to us, to his people. Many people uh, who have persistently ignored the voice of conscience or the call of the gospel have been brought to their senses by pain and sorrow. Pain gets your attention. Sorrow gets your attention. C.S. Lewis put this very succinctly. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Tim Keller observed, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Long ago, Hosea couched his call to repentance in a similar way. Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, and he will bind us up. There are others who see God's mercy in the midst of his judgment and the response to that, uh, the response to that light that's being shown through the judgment is repentance. So we have to have, like in everything else, perspective. And that's why we have the Bible. God has revealed, told us stories, given us proverbs, given us instruction so that we know how to look at things. We know how to interpret, maybe not, certainly not all the details, but in a general way, really the whole book of Job is that way. We're going to look more closely at that in a a week or two. Um, So there are often general answers, just like a parent might give a general answer to a child because a child wouldn't be able to understand all that goes into a parent's decision or judgment. 
And so again, we're still asking broad questions. Do pain and suffering have value? Does it mean anything? Uh, Keller again, he says, in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. On the face of it, we might agree that some pain and suffering contribute to our survival, but then we are left with another problem. Not all pain and suffering contributes to survival. In fact, uh, some of it kills us. And who said survival is good anyway? I'm always curious about that in the evolutionary view. This kind of everything is about survival. Well, why? Where, why is survival this this hierarchy? Hierarchy. Why is that good? Why is it just getting out of the pain good? Um, so so beyond this questionable benefit of somehow pain helps us survive, do pain and suffering have any substantial value or meaning? Uh, many of you are familiar with Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, she wrote this. She said, Our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of a different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering The love of God did not protect His own Son. The cross was the proof of His love that He gave gave that Son and that He let Him go to Calvary's cross, though legions of angels might have rescued Him. He He will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like His Son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into that process. So modern man lives in a very small world. At the very same time, when his scientific horizons seem to be expanding, he finds himself increasingly shut in by a universe which does not give him even a hint of meaning. Why? Why are we here? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What does this mean? There is no God in the modern view. There is nothing beyond the grave. Man is a speck of dust in the universe, a blip on the screen of time. There's a movie called Collateral with, I think, uh, um, Tom Cruise. And he's an assassin, and he hijacks a a, a taxi driver. And there's a scene in which uh, uh, he's explaining to the taxi driver with a gun at his head, uh, that we're just a speck of dust in the universe and none of this matters. The taxi driver asking, how can you go out and just be killing people? And he said, we're just a speck of dust in the universe and none of this means anything. Well, later uh, there's a scene in which he's also in the backseat of the taxi and the taxi driver just decides to floor it. And he's doing 120 miles an hour, weaving in and out. Of, and now Tom Cruise's character is in the backseat. He's panicking. Slow down, you're going to kill us, you're going to kill us. And he quotes that back to him. He says, we're just a speck of dust in the universe. And that's, a, that's really what we're left with if there is no God. His ultimate frontiers are the present state of human knowledge and his own obituary. Whatever you happen to know right now and the fact that you're going to die, that's it. 
There's nothing beyond apart from further scientific advance, and even that is curtailed by the fact that it's within a universe where the absence of any spiritual reality uh, means an absence of any ultimate meaning. Uh, You have to get to the end of every day and say, so what? The barren landscape of the moon may excite the imagination, but it doesn't give any answers to the deepest questions of life. The data furnished by the Hubble Space Telescope may further the astronomer's knowledge of the universe. I wouldn't say by much, given the size of the universe. But they don't tell him anything about the issues of life and death or pain or sorrow. The universe, frankly, doesn't care. Um, I, I unfortunately have two movie references today. There's a, another movie, uh, No Country for Old Men. Uh, there's a serial killer in that, and he's just going through at random killing people. He flips a coin, whether they live or die. It doesn't matter whether they're a good person or a bad person. The flip of the coin determines whether they live or die. Now, there's two old lawmen who are imperfect, but they're trying to catch him and stop him to protect the innocent. And so these are two worldviews. There's one that involves law and order and right and wrong, and we want to stop this guy because innocent people are being killed and hurt. And then there's the impersonal person just walking through the world, just literally walking down the road, stopping somewhere, and killing someone with no, just totally random. And the, the, the movie is putting forth those two worldviews. Which one's true? Which one is real? And so uh, suffering is utterly pointless. And again, the best you can do is find some means of alleviating the distress. But the Christian is persuaded that this, this world is not a blind alley. Uh, We do know some things, and we can answer some of the important questions. If God has revealed some of what he knows, and he has, then we can and do know certain things with certainty. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever. The present physical universe isn't the extraordinary outcome of some random convergence of material forces. And where did material forces come from? History isn't simply some turbulent stream of events. The world bears the stamp firmly laid on it of a purposeful creator. You know that. Everybody knows that. So the world, um, excuse me, history bears clear evidence not of the interplay of blind economic forces or mere material factors, molecules bumping into molecules, but of the providential direction of a personal God. Romans 1 tells us, 19 and 20, because that which may be known of God is manifest to them, that is all mankind, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, everyone knows that this world has meaning, that it has purpose. 
author Jerry Bridges noted in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, that which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and He brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for His glory and for our good. So the world around us bears the marks of the curse of God, but it also gives us clear evidence of the grace of God. History exhibits all the cruelties and vices of sinful men, but it's also vibrant with the redemptive purposes of God. So pain isn't some accidental artifact of life which we can only react to with a shrug uh, of some kind of despairing acquiescence. Even in pain, there is meaning to be found, not always in the moment. Sometimes it takes perspective. And the Christian aims not merely to survive the pain which suffering brings, but to learn the lessons which God is teaching him in the pain. His faith isn't a prescription for survival, uh, but it is a divinely given key to unlock at least some of the mysteries of the pains and griefs which inevitably come. I know in my own life certain things I've gone through, when I'm going through them, I don't see exactly what's going on, but give it some time. And over time, I can look back and I begin to get perspective. Oh, now I see what God was doing, or some of what God was doing, certainly not all of what God was doing. But when I'm in the middle of it, and C.S. Lewis in his book on pain, uh, in the opening, he says, I'm writing, I've been asked to write a book on this subject of pain and suffering, and, or, and, uh, and I'm going to be a theologian here, but I assure you I'm not very good at this. Um, it's a lot harder when I'm the one in the pain. And so uh, that's a process. So Oswald Chambers observed that we all know people who have been made much meaner and more irritable and more intolerable to live with by suffering. It is not right to say that all suffering perfects. It only perfects one type of person, the one who accepts the call of God in Christ Jesus. To put this in personal terms and at an individual level, the Christian faces his own suffering with real challenging questions. He doesn't merely ask, how can I find strength to face this test? This is a question he certainly does ask, and the answer he discovers uh, in, uh, is, the answer he discovers is in the grace of God, but that's not the final question. The ultimate question is, what is God teaching me through this time of suffering? So I like to say, if you're suffering, whether that's physical suffering, emotional suffering, some kind of a trial, you should always be asking, I should be asking, we should be praying, Lord, what do I need to be learning? Because God is always teaching. He's always shaping. He's always conforming me to the image of Christ. In this situation, what do I need to be doing? Because if I don't learn the lesson, I may have to repeat the lesson. Um, and I don't want to do that. Um, related to this is the further practical consideration. How am I to apply the lessons I'm learning to my own profit or to help others and above all to glorify God? How do I reflect His glory in this situation? And one of the most obvious values in what might otherwise seem to be pointless pain 
is that it provokes us to see God in a far more earnest way. I think this is really important. Read the Psalms and listen to the cry of pain and at times the sheer anguish. What is the recurring response? It's to seek God with desperate earnestness. Uh, Psalm 42.1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Likewise, it was, Paul, it was when Paul was struggling with his thorn in the flesh that he was driven to plead with God for deliverance and then to discover a greater blessing in the promise, my grace is sufficient for you. So the child may run uh, in the daylight and hardly be aware of his parents that, are, that they're walking behind him, but in the pitch, not in the pitch dark on a country road, uh, he's clutching his father or mother's hand very tightly. So the Christian discovers that there's a great danger of self-reliance and forgetfulness of God when everything's going well. We see that in the history of Israel over and over in the Bible, and the same with us. We get fat and sassy and self-confident and, I don't need God. But when the clouds gather and the going gets rough, he finds himself compelled to turn with a new urgency to his heavenly Father. Indeed, he can later praise God that the trouble came because it drove him to his Father's arms. And as pain drives us to seek the Lord, so it can be a means of revealing more of God's character to us. And so an accurate and deep knowledge of biblical theology and of the attributes of God are essential here. This is why we study the Bible now. This is why we want to know God now. We want to understand Him better now because when those troubles come, we're going to need that. And if we're if we neglect that, we're not going to have what we need. Shallow and inaccurate views cannot comfort us. If he's just the man upstairs who we hope isn't too busy to hear us when we're cornered, you know, if you're not too busy, I sure could use a little help down here. Like you can see in some Western, you know, where they're pinned down. Um, that's not the God of the Bible. Remember, he is all that he is all the time and with his undivided attention on you. Good theology lays a good foundation, but it never stands alone. However, uh, we might have a correct doctrinal idea about the meaning of grace, but the word comes alive when we have felt the gracious hand of God laid on us, laid on us in our sickness. We may have acknowledged the omnipotence of God in theory, but it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. And in our despair, his power is discovered to be all-sufficient. We may have vague ideas about the fatherhood of God. But when we've seen him by faith in the valley of tears or, or of disappointment, then we know not only in our mind but in our heart that, as Psalm 103 says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him for he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. The chastening uh, may have been so severe that at times we felt we could not endure anymore. But then we have found uh, that it was a study course to teach us his love. Hebrews 12:6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he chastens every son whom he receives. So pain is transformed from being just a bitter intrusion 
into an avenue of a more intimate communion with God. James 1, 2-4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete and lacking in nothing. So, again, as opposed to the unbeliever where suffering has no meaning, for us it is full of meaning. To the sick person struggling with a sleepless night or to a bereaved, to a bereaved person in the emptiness of loss, it is a strength to see their pain in a wider context and purpose of God. God will be glorified in all things. The angels, think about this. Um, I think Pastor Bradley brought this out in a sermon several months ago about the angels that were present at creation. And I've thought about that more since he brought that out and uh, to realize that those same angels are watching us. They sang at the dawn of the world's creation and at the dawn of the new creation in Bethlehem. Remember? Uh, They rejoice over every sinner who repents. Same angels. And they also praise God as they see the patience and the meekness and the deepening faith of a suffering Christian. They're watching this whole thing unfold. The lessons we learn in our sufferings are not only profitable to us personally, but they also equip us to help others. I see that in this congregation frequently. I know some of your stories, and I know what some of the things you've been through, and then I see you take those things and use it to minister to others. So Paul writes to the Corinthians of the comfort of God and of the further aim in view, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.4, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We're in this together. So to comfort others, we need to learn to be sensitive to their deepest needs. And what's needed is the sympathy which comes right alongside and feels the griefs that others suffer. But much sensitivity may itself be learned through our own pain. So Peter has a further lesson in view as he reflects on suffering as God's furnace in which he tests the quality of our faith. Like the jeweler, I used to be a jeweler, and Mary and I were talking about that this morning, at least a couple of lifetimes ago in my early 20s. And uh, I would sometimes gather up the shop. I'd sweep the floor uh, a few times a year, take the buffing machines, uh, all this stuff. If you saw it in a dustpan, you would think that just needs to go in the trash. But we would put it in a a, uh, dish, a porcelain dish, and start applying heat to it, a torch about 900 degrees, and we put it under a vent hood because a lot of smoke was going to go up because it starts to burn off all the trash. And after it gets really, really hot, pretty soon you see this glow down in that dish, and it looks like the sun, and it's gold. And all the dross burns off, and you're finally left with this little nugget, this little puddle of shiny molten gold. That's the image that Peter uses here as a description of, uh, of what God's doing. And so uh, 
like the jeweler who uses the refining fire to purge out the dross to expose the pure gold. God destroys self-reliance by means of suffering. But by that very same instrument, he exhibits the abiding worth of a genuine faith. This faith is much more genuine, he says, than the purest gold, which shall one day, he says, the gold's going to perish. But your faith isn't. God not only tests the reality of faith, he deepens and strengthens it through suffering. His aim is that our faith shall be so refined that at the coming of Christ, it says in 1 Peter, it will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Since, however, we shall then, uh, then cast all our crowns before him, the praise and honor and glory which the Lord shall ascribe to our triumphant faith will simply be a reflection of his own glory, what he's done in us. This is the prospect which, for Peter, makes the most bitter trial joyful. God is perfecting our faith. God will complete the process and will finally exhibit that faith which the world has so greatly despised in all of its essential worth. It's not uncommon for someone to say, I can't imagine what it's going, uh, what it's going to look like when it's finished. Uh, if you're building a house, or I know this as a woodworker, uh, I've got a, a chunk of wood sitting there, and it looks like it perhaps ought to go to the fireplace. Um, but if you're an artist, you can look at that and you begin to see something else. An architect can see before the building is built what it's going to look like when it's finished. They can see that in their mind's eye. Uh, but when it is finished, and, and other people say, I can't see it. They can look at a blueprint and they cannot imagine the finished product. But, of course, when it's finished, everyone can see it and enjoy the beauty. Another purpose which suffering serves to fulfill is to detach us from this world and to set our affections on the things above and not on the things of earth. When John urges us, love not the world, he does not refer to the created order in which we see so much evidence of the Creator's power and wisdom um, that we are led to worship Him and praise Him. He refers rather to the world as an organized human structure in which God is rejected um, and His laws are spurned and His gospel is ignored. This is the world which is one of the great foes of the church and of the believer. Again, Tim Keller says, while Christianity was able to agree with pagan writers that inordinate attachment to earthly goods can lead to unnecessary pain and grief, it also taught us that the answer to this was not to love things less, but to love God more than anything else. Only when our greatest love is God, a love that we cannot lose even in death, we can face all things with peace, grief, was not to be eliminated, but seasoned and buoyed, buoyed up with love and hope. So the world, however, doesn't always appear in raw hostility. In other words, there are a lot of things out there in the world that seem pretty attractive, pretty pleasurable. The devil is too much of a master of strategy to utilize the resources of the world in only one way. Uh, think of the screw tape letters and how... Uh, inventive the devils are. So there are times when the world is presented in a very plausible way. It's material comforts, it's popular esteem, it's satisfying pleasures, it's agencies for realizing our personal ambitions, 
These and many other factors are used to wean the Christian's affections from God until we lose all those things and then suddenly we're crying out to him. Incrementally, we find ourselves settling down in John Bunyan's Vanity Fair. And before we realize what's happening, our standards are being adjusted downward and our appetite for spiritual things is being dulled. And it's often true that such... At such times, only pain, only loss will awaken us to the folly of living for the things that are just temporary. Second Corinthians 4.18, For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we think we can just get a few more things, if we can make a few more trips, if we can get a little more money in the bank, if we could just do this, then I would be happy, then I'd be satisfied. And so we spend so much of our time in pursuit of those things that are temporary. But then when God often takes them away, or we're suddenly... I've thought about that. I remember hearing a lady speak. I think I was... uh, I don't remember how old I was. I was, I think, a pastor at that point. But she came to speak at one of the schools. She was a survivor of the Holocaust. She had been at Auschwitz. And I just remember her making a statement that most of us, if we live long enough, we don't die sooner... We'll, we'll have a bed and a nightstand and a lamp. That's how we'll end. It's, uh, it was a, that just stuck with me as an image. She said, I remember at one point thinking, if I could just, this was when she was on a train car. She said, I remember thinking, if I could just be in a soft chair with a book, I would be so happy. And so again, when we suffer, when we have pain, when we have loss, we're not. If we just wallow in that and we don't see that something else is going on to redirect our attention, then it might pass by and it might indeed be worthless and meaningless. The things which are seen have an incredibly potent influence on us until they're shown up in the context of suffering to be a to be a passing show. How irrelevant so many of the apparently major concerns of life turn out to be in the face of sickness and death. Suddenly those things don't matter. Those other things that I was all worried about don't matter anymore. The man of the world suffering is a disastrous, to the man of the world, suffering is a disastrous interruption of his enjoyment of the only world he either knows or desires. But to the Christian, it can be a sudden shock to arouse him from his worldliness and to point him afresh to higher concerns. But if God aims by suffering to detach us from this world, it's because he has a greater goal in view for us. Keller again, Christianity offers not merely a consolation, but a restoration. Not just of the life we had, but of the life we always wanted, but never achieved. And because the joy will be even greater for all that evil, this means the final defeat of all those forces that would have destroyed the purpose of God in creation, namely, to live with his people in glory and delight forever. I want to close this morning just reading, uh, I've got uh, five passages of scripture here that speak to this, and then we'll, we'll continue next week.
Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 2 Corinthians 1.3-4, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And finally, Revelation 21.4, our ultimate promise here, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God's Word is certain. I don't know anything else that is. He's certain and His Word is certain. Everything else I've ever known is uncertain. And His Word about what's ahead and what the meaning is is critical to us making it through the present. So I urge you to Think on these things to cry out to God when you're suffering. And again, suffering comes in all kinds of forms. Uh, Small pains, large pains, lasting pains, physical pain, emotional pain, fear, uh, all kinds of ways it comes at us in this world. The one solid thing, the one lighthouse in the storm is Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us what we would not know. In fact, we would simply be groping in darkness had the light of the gospel not shone on us. Help us, Lord, to look to that light, to uh, always keep our bearing and our perspective in the middle of storms that we might see Christ, that we might see purpose and meaning and find even joy in our deepest troubles. Help us, Lord, to be mature and strong in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.